Hello, Connor. Hey, hello. So, you've had a somewhat interesting week. You've been out to Austin. It wasn't on our show notes, but in terms of the nerd-related stuff, high density of nerd-related stuff in Austin that you were able to see this week. Uh, Yeah, I was visiting there with my dad, and we saw a lot. We stayed uh, in a hotel near downtown, and we mostly just walked around and went to bars and chatted for about three or four days. Cool. And then I came home. Cool. And we met, was it six months ago, eight months ago, that kind of time frame? July. July. 2017. Very good. On location. Your parents were just about to go to, was it Italy? Were they going to Tuscany? Am I right in that? They were going to Switzerland. Switzerland. Um, Okay. Yes. My dad got a... Uh, my dad retired two years ago and is uh, doing some teaching, uh, so he got to teach for a semester in Switzerland, though they were in Italy for a little bit. Okay. Uh, and I guess they kind of they took advantage of being in Europe to go to many pieces of Europe. <laughs> yes. I guess I saw photos of you in Italy. I thought you might have been in Tuscany, but I could have gotten that wrong. We were just south of Parma. Okay. Very good. Very good. So, in terms of the Austin nerd attractions, any standout things that's worth passing on to the attic aficionados listenership it was interesting to go to a place where the environment's totally different and the geography is totally different because the way people build and the Mm -hmm. materials they use is radically different than it is back home uh so i there was a lot of that there was a lot of looking at things and thinking wow the zoning laws here must be very lax because there's a 16 story building right next to a two story building and uh in many blocks of one story buildings and that seems a little odd and it was huge we drove to a suburb and it took about 40 minutes and all we passed was very recently built homes mm. yeah austin's a strange place i've never actually been to austin i did interview for a job there once a company i was working for had hired a bunch of ex-microsoft people and rather than living in las vegas because hey who wants to live in las vegas they had decided to create a technology and uh, what we'll call it incubator in austin and bought just some amazingly lavish office equipment like a fully you know 180 degree reclining desk with screens and stuff that basically floated overhead and a bunch of other stuff. I mean, Austin is, I think it might have a a catchy name like Silicon Valley, but it is like the only part of Texas now that seems to be getting, I don't know, this kind of growth. I mean, Dallas and Houston always had old money technology, but Austin is like the new money technology. And obviously they have South by Southwest there. A bunch of other things. So, yeah, interesting place. Yeah, and certainly looking at all the flooding infrastructure and the water management infrastructure while I was there was they built their convention center right next to a creek in an old industrial zone. So the whole creek is culverted in and then you can just walk for miles and miles through the street grid and there's this little creek that follows you the entire time. And I think that's the drainage for downtown. Hmm. I've been to San Antonio. I've spent quite a bit of time in Houston, a little bit of time in Dallas. I think Texas is, in terms of secession, Texas strikes me as the state that's primed for secession at any given stage. It's just a completely different country. I think you're looking at it with American eyes. This is your problem here, Connor. You need to understand that Texas is its own country, and the ways of Texas are the ways of Texas, basically. 
Oh, certainly. We wandered through the state capitol, and the state capitol is huge building that looks just like the American capitol building. Uh, and it also has a six-story bunker underneath it that takes up an entire city block that is, I think, all offices, basically. Well, I guess if you're George W. Bush, you need this kind of infrastructure ready for the future, right? So, always thinking ahead. Always thinking ahead, George W. Bush. So, yes. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. So, you've returned to Pittsburgh, and you're sitting down this evening to record another Attic Aficionados. We got a lot of really positive correspondence from a number of the listeners that previously had threatened me with a wide variety of things if I didn't actually put out another episode of Attic Aficionados. So thank you to those folks for giving the last recording the thumbs up. One of the fundamentals, one of the core principles behind Attic Aficionados has been associated with the preparation of food and general discussions associated with food. And we didn't have it on the topic list last time, but I'm interested. Let's start with, if you were to go out to eat, not eating at home, what is the go-to place for Connorsite's bar? I don't know that I have a go-to place. I think I do. I like going out, but there's a lot of different... I don't know that I can choose one. Top five. <laughs> okay. Uh, locally, there's a restaurant called The Vandal, mm-hmm. uh, which serves mostly American fare, uh, slightly upscale, uh, but they have a brunch uh, most days that's really good. Uh, I tend to eat a lot at coffee shops because mm-hmm. I like coffee shops a lot more. Uh, and I usually, I have small meals and then one meal a day is a big meal. But that means that sometimes if I'm going out to eat, uh, I'll go a week of not actually going to a restaurant, you know, but I might be in a coffee shop or at a library that sells coffee or biscuits or whatever. Interesting. But I do like to cook a lot at home. Um, and that's kind of primarily where I, I try to try out new stuff. And if, an attic aficionado's listener was coming to your home. What kind of fare would they expect to receive on a standard evening? So it would depend on the person, and I'd have to ask them and find out <laughs> a little bit about them. Fair uh, enough. But if I was just picking something random that I like, uh, because I like to cook it, uh, they, there is a Thai stir-fry with chicken that I cook, uh, and I like to cook it because it tastes really good, uh, but really I like to cook it because you cook it in batches. You cook it in a, a very hot skillet, and you and you don't clean the skillet between the batches. And so by the time you're starting the second batch, there's a bunch of charred pieces from the first batch that make it into the second batch. And so the more you make it, the better each batch tastes because you're getting this caramelized reaction from all the previous batches. And in Thailand, they sell it. They basically just make it continuously all day, and so every batch tastes good because they never stop throwing stuff in there. I've lived in Malaysia, I've lived in Thailand, and also I dated a, well, she was Taiwanese, but she lived in Malaysia through the latter part of my college. You were exactly right. I mean, certainly it's what cooking in terms of most of these areas. But the order is very important, and as you say, the charring is also very important. One of the things that I found fascinating was the order associated with the onions and the garlic is really important. There was typically a fried egg at some stage, which again, as you say, is a separate piece. And each of these things is done processionally to conclude with the final mixing of all the ingredients, which really is very fast because you've cooked everything up until the final point. It's almost like a warming, uh, typically at the end. 
And if you see people that do this stuff professionally on the street and occasionally haven't seen it so much here, but in the UK, in our, in our hometown in the UK, there was a place where they had typically five or six woks going under fire. They were always in motion. They were always throwing ingredients backwards and forwards. But as you say, the continuous use of the same cooking surface actually imparts flavor over, you know, multiple batches, as you note. So it was interesting actually reading, you, you gave me a recipe leading into this. The subtleties are things like when you add various kinds of chili, these kind of things in the cooking process. And what I found interesting, which you've also noted, is that it's the kind of dish that you can refine over time. So while I was dating Isabel, my girlfriend at the time, we tried a few things. Like I said, well, look, the garlic and onion order, I think, is actually relatively important. I was always into putting the garlic in first and the onions in second. So we tried it that way. And yes, it kind of Italianized, for want of a better term, some of the flavors, which were actually quite wrong. And then we reverted back to her original cooking. In terms of the refinements that you've made to this dish, what kind of things have you changed around? What kinds of things have you added, removed, this kind of stuff? Uh, so the chicken in that recipe, there's a point where you put, I think, baking soda on the chicken for a while and you change its pH. And the timing on that turns out to be pretty important because if you let it go too long, it gets it goes too far. Mm. And the recipe wants you to do that step earlier. But if you're making a bunch of batches, you actually want to batch that as well. Or do a really good job of washing it, which is a little bit crazy because then you just have this bowl of chicken and water. And it's a strange, it's a strange thing to put your hand into for sure. Certainly. Your chicken is interesting. I mean, with Isabel, we did a lot of seafood. I mean, seafood can also be easily added. And it's interesting associated with the pH as well because there's a, so for example, if you were to do a similar recipe with beef, you've got a, slice the beef really really finely basically to kind of sub tendon length in order to do it well but yeah it's an interesting principle the whole nature of the stir fry and the various you know various interpretations of it because i think certainly in australia at the time i was cooking stir fries with my girlfriend the prior generation of stir fries were always really dubious and didn't as you say have the removal of ingredients procedure it was just a matter of an order in which you threw ingredients together and it always turned out to be kind of mushy. Some of the vegetables were always overcooked. Some of the vegetables were always undercooked. A lot of the subtlety that you get in the individual cooking stages was completely lost in the, I don't know, Australian family style stir fry, where basically you added things cumulatively until you ended up with this kind of noodle, meat, vegetable, mush thing. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know, the nuances which avoid the mush phenomena? So taking things, putting things into the, wok or uh, pan and then removing them before adding other things is definitely critical. One of the side technologies that's implied by that is that you should have a, a vessel that is the sort of keeping everything warm that already got cooked vessel off to the side and you will want to use something like an earthenware serving dish or something something that has some heat mass because it will taste better if you can throw things in, take things off, keep them almost at the same temperature, but not getting any more additional heat or additional cooking, just kind of sitting there and then being able to throw that stuff back. Uh, the other thing that it promotes a style of cooking that I think is less about 
recipes and more about knowing the fineness with which you need to chop an ingredient and how long you need to cook it to consistently cook it. And then it doesn't actually matter what you put in because you just know that if you're making stir fry, chicken gets diced to exactly this dimension uh, and it gets diced on the grain. Eggs get thrown in here if you're going to add eggs. And so you start to develop not necessarily a recipe for it, but a system of principles about how stir fry ought to be, uh, which is tempered by uh, this great, this wok that just stays at 600 degrees and which is really a great instrument for doing this. One of the interesting things that we found was that we started to get into the noodles, for example, the quality of the noodles and these kind of things. Like we did deep dives into certain aspects, but the final stage which we really thought was a kind of master-level thing. At the time, or actually prior to dating um, Isabelle, I spent some time in Malaysia and Thailand, and they were starting to absorb this kind of fusion idea, which is, as you say, take the wok cooking styles and apply it predominantly to Italian food, but occasionally to French food. And what was fascinating through that is you could then create a wok cooking style bolognese, which is something that I did with um, Isabelle, through the period of time that we were dating and we started doing interpretive dishes of existing food you could do them with various seafood dishes as well we use a similar wok cooking style but you do it for a relatively straightforward western dish and you just experiment using the same techniques have you done anything like that have you looked into the kind of hybrid experimentation of things using similar cooking techniques my favorite hybrid dish is i make pierogies with cumin Mm. And I do that because uh, my partner is uh, Mexican-American. Pierogies were unfamiliar to both of us when we moved to Pittsburgh. They're a Polish mashed potatoes and cheese inside of uh, a little dough container. Kind of like ravioli, but savory. Well, I guess ravioli is also like ravioli, but Polish. Mm. Like gnocchi, basically, in some regard. Uh, but... Uh, like ravioli, they have a, a pasta shell, okay. uh, and so you can boil them, you can fry them, you can melt them in butter, basically, <laughs> butter and olive oil. Uh, and so the first time we were cooking them, Raja was cooking them, and she said, oh, they're getting fried. Okay, I'll just throw some cumin in, because if you're frying stuff in olive oil, throwing cumin on it never hurts, and they taste amazing. They don't really taste Polish anymore at all. Uh, they taste something like uh, an empanada with cheese in it mm -hmm. and uh and they fry up and they turn a really beautiful gold brown color and usually they get a little bit of char because the cumin tends to tends to burn or singe certainly so if you like a little bit of grit <laughs> very good very good also in the continuation of topics that we offered from last week you wanted to dig a little bit deeper into this notion of full-spectrum characters, of characters in role-playing games that move through time and space and find themselves in a wide variety of settings which aren't necessarily defined by Dungeons & Dragons, for example. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, I mostly wanted to give a shout-out to... There's a game publisher called Goblinoid Games, and they produce two systems, Labyrinth Lord and Mutant Future, mm. uh, and these are both... Uh, old school revival systems. So Labyrinth Lord is uh, a, a loose rewrite of some of the early editions of Dungeons and Dragons. Mutant Future is 
I think based on Gamma World Second Edition, mm-hmm. uh, or suspiciously close to Gamma World Second Edition. Though I'm sure if that's wrong, we'll get told. There'll be someone out there who will know this and get in contact. Yes, uh, yeah. but those two systems, Labyrinthord and Mutant Future, are uh, mutually compatible. And in fact, there's a additional set of rules for how to play with both of them. Uh, and so, if you wanted to play uh, with fantastical characters that run into mutants, uh, these two systems do bridge that gap. Uh, and also, as you look at them, you realize that if you picked up any old module from the TSR days or from the Gamma World days, both of those modules can, with not too much trouble, get played in this hybrid system. Uh, and the whole thing is not open source, but licensed in such a way that if you wanted to make a commercial product that used one of those, you don't need to ask permission. You can just say it's compatible with these. Interesting. So on my side, because it takes two intellectual properties that fascinate me, I think probably Kevin Simbida's Rift's World, which enables you to not only play Robotech, as in Robotech, not the Japanese version, but also the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles together, when I saw those two games using the same rule system, and Ke- I mean, Kevin Sabita is, for me, a modern-day Gary Gygax. In fact, I think he's actually gone beyond Gygax in terms of just an amazing and completely prolific rules creator who, unlike Gygax, didn't fall foul of a relatively large company trying to extract his blood on a regular basis. And Sabita's work for Robotech, for Rifts, obviously, for the Ninja Turtles in terms of intellectual property, but also deep fantasy, deep futurism, but also modern-day gameplay where you can use modern-day weapons. I mean, that's one of the things associated with the Ninja Turtle universe in particular was it was the first role-playing game where I saw modern-day weapons, and Symbita has a number of like manuals that expand to, to great levels of detail for people that want to pick up you know, AK-47s, for example. Um, fascinating fellow, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of these rule sets. The Robotech stuff has gotten a resurgence because he did a Kickstarter maybe three or four years ago that I contributed to to create a kind of Robotech skirmish game, which is, uh, well, mainly in my attic, hence the name of the podcast, um, but a fascinating rule set and certainly something that I supported very heavily. Have you encountered any of the Rifts or any of the Sambita universe stuff? When I was in high school, which was public high school in California, and I was a freshman, the seniors were playing riffs, and they were much cooler than me and didn't really let me hang out, but I could hang out about 15 feet away and listen to them talk (laughs) about the game, and I did that. Oh, you're taking me back. I remember one of them called himself Lord Benjamin, Mm -hmm. uh, and the teachers went with it, which was interesting. Interesting. Well, he must have got reasonable grades then. They'd only go with it if he got reasonable grades, right? Yes. <laughs> and, oh, and they, the one rule book page I saw that they showed me was the rule book page for Were Dragons, mm. which is from the Rifts Interdimensional Market Supplement. I looked it up years, years, years and years later and found it and said, oh my God, I didn't. This wasn't just some weird part of high school. This actually happened. This guy actually had this book because mm. uh, I found the PDF pages at some point. Yeah, the mutants down under rules for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were seminal for me. And I think at the time, 
I had to get them on microfish <laughs> to like literally go into a library and read them on microfish in Australia was the only way I could get access to them, which in and of itself was a rather curious thing. I need to actually look up that rule set. I'm sure somewhere out there in AVE books land or on eBay, the mutants down under rules are there. The things with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles rules was they showed pictures of torture, various creatures being disemboweled. The level of violence was even outside the realm of D&D, but it was because they were cartoon characters, I guess they thought they could get away with it. But Sabina is a really interesting character, and if you ever have the opportunity, I'm still looking to the listenership here, of listening to any podcasts where he's interviewed, he has a scholarly, deep nerd way of dealing with nerds. Like, his, his whole interaction associated with Robotech was fascinating because he'd get these people that would stand up and ask him questions in the public, like the public forums that he would talk in. They would just be, you know, asking questions about Robotech ammunition technology. <laughs> and so Gavin Sabina would give them perfectly frank answers, very friendly, like, you know, like, yes, he'd considered these things as well. But um, he's still alive. There's been a couple of documentaries made about him. And in terms of just production, I don't think there's anyone in role-playing that is even close to Kevin Sabina. I mean, Rifts is literally now probably tens, if not hundreds, of different books. I mean, so many different books. If you go to a relatively good role-playing store of note, they will typically have a Rifts section and... More importantly, if you go to second-hand bookstores, particularly in the Bay Area, you'll find countless Sambita books in there. Just someone who's kind of flown under the radar associated with mainstream role-playing, but for people, as you say, for people that know, <laughs> Roots is quite a system. Surely. I seem to remember a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles villain who was... They thought he was Shredder, but he was actually an alien in the belly of a cybernetic shredder. Mm. Do you remember this? Certainly. Okay. Yes. And I think, that yeah, continue, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that, that, that there's a link right there between uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Robotech, right? And also Masters of the Universe, actually, because there's a Masters of the Universe villain that is very similar. So, yeah, it's interesting, interesting. But you wanted to talk a little bit about mechs, and I don't think we covered mechs enough in the last recording. I have a particular interest in this currently, but I want you to dig a little bit deeper into the whole notion of power armor. Oh, so it makes sense, right? It's it's the modern version of knights in armor. If somebody is wearing power armor, then they can embody all of the same properties that they would if they were a heroic knight in the past, but also all of the properties that they could embody if they were a panzer tank. Yeah, what's interesting here is I put down, there's a game out now called Conflict 47, where the, the C's are replaced by K's, and 47's the number 47. It takes on what is called, broadly in a genre, Weird War 2, which is the notion that World War 2 doesn't end in 1945. I mean, you've got, um, was it the Man in the High Castle which was the Amazon, well, it was a novel series to start off with and then the Amazon franchise. But it's the notion that the Second World War doesn't end in 1945, that mysteriously all the super, well, all the powers at play, all the Axis and Allies folk, find ways of creating mechs. And this predates Conflict 47. There were a bunch of weird war rule systems that came out through the 90s and 2000s, but Conflict 
47 is the latest incarnation of any size. And that is exactly the notion that you have panzer technology, for want of a better term, that's being reutilized to make these mechs. And obviously, are you familiar with the story of the Sherman tank? Uh, no, continue. Please. So continue. the idea of the Sherman was that the US had a, a variety of automakers at the time leading into the Second World War. And they all came to an agreement on the outer structure of the Sherman uh, as being the tank of choice. But each manufacturer made different internals for the Shermans. So one might have had a Chrysler engine. Maybe it might have had a Chrysler engine. I'm not sure. It must have had a Chrysler engine. I'm just thinking of Daimler Chrysler as it came after the Germans took over. But let's, let's take ourselves back. So some had Ford engines. Some had General Motors engines. Some had uh, Chrysler engines. And the internals of each of the tanks was defined by the auto manufacturer at the time. So typically the way they did it, I understand, is that various troop sections would all get the Ford ones or all get the General Motors ones or all get the, you know, what have you. And that way, I think there were five automakers that all contributed to the Sherman. So take this notion to, you know, mech kind of creatures and take the various technologies of the various companies as they are utilized in building these things. Now, the one thing about Weird War games is that they always have a zombie mysticism component. And typically the Germans, and universally through all these game systems, the Germans are the ones that get the zombies. Because obviously by 1947, if the Germans didn't have zombie technology, they wouldn't have a lot of people to fight, basically. And also, I mean, what's the Thule Society doing? Get off your butts, guys. <sighs> Yeah, so it's very interesting as a perspective, and what Conflict 47 does is actually takes an existing set of 28mm World War II figures, which is called Bolt Action, and for folks listening in who are familiar with Warhammer, it's basically like Warhammer World War II. They're the same kind of figure size. The tanks are disproportionately smaller than the Warhammer tanks, but that's only because the Warhammer tanks are disproportionately larger than tanks have been historically in battle. So you have an existing figure range for all the factions, one of the best term, and you have existing mechanics. So they can add, you know, plasma rifles on Shermans and, you know, they could do, I think they have anti-gravity weapons on the Panzers and all this other kind of stuff. So you have all this mixing of sci-fi, but beautifully, as Connor noted, using the technology at the time or the visual thing of the technology. I mean, if you look at, Russian tanks versus German tanks, they look night and day. They're completely different things based on the manufacturing processes and the style and also the vast need that the Soviet Union had in the Second World War to manufacture a lot of stuff very quickly, whereas the Germans had slightly better lead-in but still had to manufacture things relatively quickly. So it's an interesting visual aesthetic taken to time period it's it's got elements of steampunk in it as well which i find really fascinating associated with steampunk has a lot of walkers in it in general descriptive terms and you know these walkers are very much based on the aesthetic of the you know various military powers that they're from so you know weird war 2 is an interesting genre to take stuff that you'd normally associate with futurism and put slightly in the past. But again, steampunk also, again, with the, you know, 19th century, takes these ideas and puts it back in time as well, a lot more wood, a lot more aesthetics. I'm not familiar 
There are half a dozen games, unfortunately I'm not familiar with their names, that are based in the steampunk mech thing. And what's interesting is there's a, a film coming out or a series of films coming out being made by Peter Jackson that I think, I'm not sure what it's called. I listened to uh, an audiobook associated with it, but it's, it's associated with large roaming cities taking out other cities. And that has very solid steampunk elements as well, even though it's based in the future. So I think a lot of the stuff is going to be getting into the popular consciousness uh, associated with taking mechs and putting them into environments where they haven't historically been previously. You noted Aliens as a great example of like early mech development in popular consciousness. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, Connor? Uh, so the mech in Aliens uh, is the power loader, and it, Aliens is the film that has the space marine, that introduces the space marines, and introduces a strong militaristic element to the franchise. The first movie was very, very much a closed box horror movie. Uh, and this is more like an advanced recon team scouting a colony that's gone wrong. And because they're the military in the loading bay of the ship, they have uh, an industrial armature that you can wear or stand inside of or both and lift big pallets full of guns and uh, move ships around and do all the other stuff that you would need to do in this uh, this barracks bay weapon cache place. And that mech ends up becoming that suit of power armor uh, is what Ripley wears in the final fight with the alien queen at the end of the movie. And it's a very famous scene. And the entire scene, you can see that it says Caterpillar right on her arm. It's some of the best product placement. Yes. I mean, when I think of the genre, again, taking H.R. Giga's work, which is associated with the aliens and their alien aesthetic, Games Workshop had a game called Space Hulk, which might be a little bit before your time, even though they really I know Space recently. Hulk. Very good. Space Hulk, to me, takes the Aliens aesthetic and moves it into a game which is actually great fun. I've had a lot of fun playing Space Hulk physically, with a 20-year gap in between, and also the wide variety, some of them Java-written <laughs> Space Hulk games that you can play online, which capture some of the elements. Um, but certainly Space Hulk, for me, was an extension of the Alien franchise, again, with H.O. Giga's work in the Aliens construction, but also with here Games Workshop Space Marines, or Terminators specifically, going through large hulking ships. What what was your introduction to Space Hulk? Did you play it frequently, or how did you come in contact with it? I know Space Hulk because the role-playing game stores that I went to when I was growing up and when I moved to Pittsburgh usually had a Warhammer component, and some of the larger ones, if they had a big table setup or a couple table setups, they typically had a large open battlefield for fantastical battles, a, a full Space Hulk ship that was pretty permanent, and a ruined hive world of some kind for futuristic battles, and maybe sometimes World War II battles, but uh, something that could get a lot of roads and buildings added to it or taken away. There was a Netflix, maybe it was just a general documentary that was on Netflix called... What was it called? Its, it's subtitle was H.R. Giga's World. And the thing that struck me about him was that he was very much akin to the early horror comic book creators. 
He'd taken some aspect of horror associated predominantly, I think, with the Second World War, even though a lot of his stuff was more avant-garde, and projected it into a strange kind of robotic futurism. And the stuff that came through Aliens is only a small part of his work. He had a series of gun-related things and other like aspects to his work that was considerably darker and more psychologically troubling. And it's interesting, actually, that out of all his work, the alien's aesthetic was what moved him ahead because he had so many other parts of his work. Are you familiar with H.R. Giger at all? I am, and I think some of the stuff that didn't make it into the Alien franchise, a lot of it is related to both fertility and also factory production, mm. which is maybe the opposite side of the the the, the mouth with the smaller mouth, both of which are definitely male in shape and violent is this this counter violence of of creating violence over and over again that stuff is definitely also disturbing and much less explored by hollywood which i think is more about hollywood than it is about him mm. i mean certainly the gene stealer narrative which is the games workshop part of his work relates very much to genetics. So the gene stealers are literally, I guess, genetic entities that try to steal the genes of the host. They're and, like the thing, right? Um, they're considerable. They've got elements of insectoid. They're interesting because certainly the most recent stuff that Games Workshop has put out, which was really beautifully done, is associated with how the gene stealers impregnate as you say these hive worlds where people are working in mines and what have you and they start out as a kind of brain virus cult uh which basically convinces the well there are strange four generations i can't really remember the exact elements to it but the notion is that there are hybrid human gene stealers and then the next generation they all move towards gene stealers basically but originally the notion was that there were gene stealers that got into cows, there were gene stealers that got into a wide variety of, like, farm animals, and they all created different gene stealers, like the ones that got into chickens that basically became flying ones, and these kind of things. And that, as you say, has a fertility element to it, which they didn't really explore in the Aliens franchise, but certainly slightly more um, in the Games Workshop exploration. But again, what you're dealing with is generations of people. So eventually parents that look the most human actually give birth to one of these alien creatures and that is through standard like that's not through forced impregnation or anything like that that's just because the gene stealers get into their genetics and start manipulating them so after a few generations you know they'll have this horrible alien baby but somewhere along the way they might have extra arms or various other things which are just explained by the nature of working on these highly radioactive planets doing mining and things. I mean, just works into kind of birth mutation stuff. But the underlying brain virus element to it, I find absolutely fascinating because in modern day forms, I mean, people could talk, you could talk about political parties as brain viruses. There are so many aspects to this thing. My periodic friend, Douglas Rushkov, wrote a book called Mind Virus that explored actually how large parts of the culture are cult-like in a similar way as these gene stealers are cult-like in their various mining, you know, mining planets. So what's interesting through this is how Giga's work collected not only into some kind of popular consciousness, but also became 
very academically palatable as means of understanding, you know, neoconservatism, neoliberalism, all these other kinds of things. So it's one of these curious crossovers where in creating really dark science fiction, he inspired people enough to start a conversation associated with social movements, which is a strange kind of, as a person, you get the sense that there is a lot of stuff. I mean, he's now deceased, but there was a lot of stuff going on um, through his life and his artistic creations. There's a lot to go there. <laughs> I think I'll pick up on one thread, uh, which you touched on, which was the idea in, uh, in, in the Gene Stealers, which is also true in, in a lot of other uh, role-playing games and also uh, different fictional worlds generally, of mutation as of radiation as a sort of magic and mutation as I think always painful, but occasionally surprisingly useful to the people who get mutated as a trope within those worlds. Certainly. And to conclude, he had a miniature railway, a ride on miniature railway set through his entire house and garden, which is the last and curious aspect of H.R. Giga. So Dark Star, H.R. Giga's world, I'd thoroughly recommend it. It's interesting also because it shows intergenerational communication. He had a number of understudies and curious folk that came in and talked to him who were in their 20s when he was in his 70s. And I think those interactions are particularly beautiful as they're captured in Darkstar as well. Have you seen Darkstar? I have not seen it, but I'm putting it on the list. I thoroughly recommend it. It's certainly worthy. And the sad, it's, it's part of a genre of documentaries associated with the last days of a certain person and you get the sense that he understands it in that context as well i think sartre and foucault had two amazing last days of films made about them and i think within certain european philosophy types this is a well-known genre of getting documentary folk into the last few you know months that people are alive and it's burroughs had feel. one as well of course yeah yeah no plenty in the u.s too i'm sorry i'm missing that <laughs> so yeah the h william burroughs one was uh, uncle bill is quite a trip most definitely most definitely you put down and i think this is a topic that i could talk about for an extended period mobile homes and rural living yeah i find the way in which rural living has changed over the decades and the tools and technology that people bring to the site that they're living at and the way those things get there changing over time to be a fascinating piece of American history. And one thing that you didn't note, but is central certainly for my Australian experience and also that I've observed in Northern California is associated with caravans. The caravans are to a lesser extent buses, but caravans that come into an area and then get a permanency, you know, basically the tires are deflated or they're put up on cement blocks and they just become a home in and of themselves. And certainly through the areas that I traveled through Australia and also in Northern California, there's a, you know, you see caravans off their wheels in both locations. I mean, would you consider caravans as part of this thing? Yeah, certainly I would. Uh, and Airstream trailers, mm -hmm. I think also count. And usually those are not, uh, it depends, but sometimes you, you'll see an Airstream trailer behind a pickup truck or, or another kind of vehicle that you're definitely not going to sleep in, but you might sleep in the trailer. I think Airstream tailors tend to be a little bit more mobile, but I do, I've seen them as kind of like an outbuilding in a place that has other parked mobile homes. 
And I think in this country, certainly, I mean, here I'm talking about films that I've seen associated with the 70s, but I think in large parts of the country through the 70s as well, caravans were like the first, and what is called here airstream trailers, I call them caravans, it's the same thing, basically. These things were the like the first means of human habitation that arrived in certain areas. So in particular, various, you know, modern day esque 1970s on, I'm thinking of No Country for Old Men in particular, but there are half a dozen other films like that where the trailer is the, the first point of like human habitation in a particular area. You also mention prefab homes, which I think I th- there are so many naming conventions here associated with this because when I think of trailer parks, are they, they're not prefab homes. These are things like log cabins and things that have existing floor plans that turn up on, on flats, I guess, that people then build from there. Is that what you're talking about? I'll probably get these definitions slightly wrong, but at least this is, this is how I'll, I'll try to structure these categories. A prefabricated home would be, a home that has been built off-site, trucked to the site, and craned into place onto a foundation that you build on-site. Mm. Uh, or every once in a while, if it's a certain kind of, of prefabricated home, uh, like a shipping container house, depending on where you're putting it, you can just drop it right on the dirt. And then a mobile home would be something built like that, except built to have permanent wheels so that uh, not... A large truck, you wouldn't need an 18-wheeler to move it. You could move it with your pickup truck, uh, or it is itself mobile, uh, like a big GMC van. Uh, and then kit homes would be homes that it's all the stuff to build the house, and it you order it by mail, and it shows up on uh, a, a whole truck, and then they just unload all this lumber, leave in the big pile, and say, go nuts, kid, you got a house. And Within this, although it's relatively modern, there's the tiny home movement and various other movements associated with, which I think really have their roots in perhaps Airstream trailers, perhaps a variety of different things, maybe some of the stuff you described associated with mobile homes, but they are becoming their own, I don't know, their own particular genre. I'm not sure if you follow the tiny home movement, but I subscribe to two or three YouTube channels that just feed me on a weekly basis, six or seven of these amazing houses that have been built either predominantly in Northern California and usually either Scandinavia or Germany or Switzerland. But the aesthetic changes, obviously, by the location. But the principle is you get, I guess, what is a flatbed trailer and you build a house on it of some description, sometimes multi-story, sometimes single-story, and then you move it to the location. I mean, how do tiny homes fit into this general genre? Tiny homes, to me, seem to be the rich people version of mobile homes. Yeah. And they cater specifically to, uh, I guess, the digital nomad lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It seems like everyone who's making a tiny home also is vlogging about making their tiny home uh, or has some sort of digital business that bankrolls what they do and they can take quite a lot of time to build themselves a tiny home that said the notion of of having full-time work and it doesn't really matter what city you're in to do it is interesting and it in a way gets to this rural urban divide 
because internet access in rural communities means that they can be that they could be a place where you could live and do that kind of work. And so suddenly there are rural communities where just because they have the internet, suddenly people who are getting paid 70 or 80 or six figure thousand dollars a year could live in their county. I do take the notion that there is a yuppie, for want of a better term, factor associated with tiny homes. Certainly they've tried to rebrand it in San Jose, California, where I'm recording, as a means of providing perhaps homeless accommodation. And I think what's interesting is there's a subsection of tiny homes which aren't associated with vlogging, but more associated with what, you know, what the, the tent cities that are developing in most American cities, or at least most American cities that don't have really savage winters, they all now have quite substantial tent cities in various areas. One of the things I found particularly as we traveled into Southern California was the density of tent cities existed just as much as they do in Northern California. And certainly as we traveled eastwards, we also found this periodically, or although as the winters get more harsh, the size of the tent cities decrease accordingly. So I think there is probably a sub part of the tiny home movement that is associated with addressing some aspect of this, but you're right. A lot of them tend to be for digital nomads and digital nomads almost by definition have a YouTube presence and sell a wide variety of other related shtick. I mean, that whole genre of like YouTube digital nomad is something that I've certainly enjoyed watching mainly because they get into really strange life situations based on these circumstances too. Are you familiar with this genre at all? Of digital nomads? Yeah, and just the the vlogging of their life experiences and what you can get away with in a Walmart parking lot at, you know, 3 a.m. I mean, this kind of stuff. There is one person I follow who goes to... It took me a while to figure this out, but I realized what she was doing is she books Airbnbs or Airbnb evenings for herself and her family in homes that were designed for long-term use either because they're permaculture homes or weird shipping container homes or a reused Belgian jail that got turned into a house or any other very specific, very novel reuse or, uh, or long-term home creation. Uh, she tries to visit them. And I guess the YouTube money pays for the stay, and they can just do that indefinitely. Hmm. So many different business models being squashed on a daily basis by YouTube, but interesting, interesting. So I think this is going to be a re reoccurring topic, perhaps delving deeper into some of the aspects of this, because certainly we kind of skirted on buses. I have friends in Australia that are renovating a school bus currently to be a, a wandering nomad home for them. Um, my friend Bruce Damer has a couple, I think, of modified school buses. One that was modified to look very similar to the freak bus of the 1960s associated with, what was his name, Ken Kesey? Maybe something like that. Anyway, he had, um, was it the acid test or whatever? Anyway. The, Electric the... Kool-Aid acid test. Yes. Ken Casey? Casey. Was it, it. Casey? Uh, anyway, it's somewhere between Kesey and Casey. Anyway. So, yeah, my friend Bruce Damer has a bus called No Further, which is a joke on Further, which was their bus. So I'm familiar with the notion of the bus as well in this, but there are so many different aspects to 
each of these particular parts. Maybe we'll divide it into a six or seven segment session that we will spend accordingly over so many recordings. One topic I wanted to conclude with related to the lesser known history associated with the scouting movement. We touched in very broad brushstrokes last recording associated with our own personal experience with the scouts, but nothing beats talking about Baden Powell himself, a character who is a historical enigma for a variety of different reasons. What kind of urban legend do you know about Baden-Powell? I know Baden-Powell because a friend of mine uh, encouraged me, as a person who had done scouting, to read his original scouting manual, uh, which I did. And his original scouting manual uh, is uh, a manual for army scouting for non-commissioned officers and men. I think something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's pretty explicitly, this is a military manual. I want this to be handed out by the British army to NCOs and enlisted men so that they learn about how to at least embody the mindset of a forward scout for their unit, if not actually be one of those people. Uh, and I think that he really thought of scouts as uh, an Im- one of the best embodiments of what the military could produce because I think he thought of scouts as agentic people, people who could be their own army, supply their own munitions, live off the land, uh, make their own calls, uh, by keeping the chain of command as a mental construct in their head. And I think that notion, he wanted his entire army, he wanted the entire British army to be all scouts. And then he got into the, he started the scouting movement among uh, young men and young women uh, in order to have a better recruiting pool. There have been various nationalistic scouting movements. There was one in Malaysia that's name escapes me, which was in full effect when I lived in Malaysia briefly in the mid 90s. But obviously Hitler Youth is another example of this. And there have been various militarized youth movements that have been precisely modeled on the scouts. I used to, let me see if I can pull out an Australian accent here. But the, the beauty of the scouts has been the notion that they really are, as you say, a forward scouting movement. But if you start doing that in a military context, the notion of doing things like clearing minefields with Cub Scouts you know, there's so much beautiful visualization associated with, come on, boys, there's a badge in it for you. Just wander over to that other side of the field. You know, send in the scouts, all this other related stuff. And certainly as a Boy Scout and to a lesser extent after I left the scouts, the origins of the scouts were not lost on me and my peers at all. In fact, Baden-Powell as a creation of the First World War, which is where, you know, this whole thing comes from, the whole nature that this boys' movement is going to be so heavily associated with militarism. I collected scouting books through the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and I had quite an extensive collection for a number of years. I've since thinned it out. But what is beautiful going through these scouting books is the changes of public perception. Like, through the 1940s and 50s, Scouts as being a military, you know, modelled on the military, perfectly fine. In fact, it's really, there's a 
kind of nationalist religious element, which is really curious. And very interestingly, looking at the US scouting books versus the UK scouting books and the Australian scouting books, they all took a different pitch associated with this thing. But certainly in the 1970s and 1980s, the scouts had a kind of slightly socialist twist in the UK and Australia, which wasn't so much embodied in the US. And you see, because the scouting manuals are republished every maybe five years. So you have this beautiful stepping from edition to edition to edition where things are removed, things are added. The diet of the scouts in the 1950s was really fascinating. They have a whole lot of stuff associated with how you transport, you know, large cuts of steak and things like that. Like they ate very, very well through the 1950s and 1960s. The 1970s, this kind of tamed down. 1980s, there's a whole lot of kind of dried food. But the scouts are not a static thing. They're a thing that has changed and evolved over time, which is why now allowing for both genders in the scouts and also the whole notion of, in in this country in particular, the kind of repressive, the whole notion of scouting sexuality has always struck me as really very curious, particularly because anyone who has ever experienced the Boy Scouts will know that there is a strong, strange curious under the covers kind of sexual component to the whole thing which is not actively discussed but certainly as part of the experience of almost every cub scout boy scout you go on large camps with large groups of boys you know it it writes itself in terms of the nature of these things there's an extent to which scouting automatically sets up uh the beginning 20 minutes of of an 80s movie or a stephen king novel uh Right. Oh, just, oh, yeah, here's a bunch of here's a bunch of uh, of boys right at the cusp of puberty and some weird stuff's going to happen to them. But also what's going to be weirder is the stuff that they choose to do themselves. Exactly. And within that, I think Baden-Powell is such an enigma, but also, to, as you say, to read his original work. And in fact, it was a work that was followed up with a series of supplements. I own some of the supplements on the original printing, which are actually some of the few scouting books that I'll probably never get rid of. Those, and I think I have one 1940s scouting book, which is just so absolutely beautiful. And similarly, I have one, which was the scouting book that I was handed in Australia, age eight, perhaps. So I think they're out of my scouting books collections are probably the ones that I'm going to keep. But the supplements are fascinating because very similar to like a role-playing game. <laughs> Baden Powell was issuing like additional rules, additional techniques. And I think after a period of time, there was like a scouting council that started putting out the supplements before they actually started rewriting or actually moving towards like a single book manual uh, for scouts to live by. But as a fan of role-playing games, the scouting handbook is a role-playing game in some really fundamental and profound sense, right? Well, and I think that the Marine Corps doctrinal publications are too, right? Like, I I think that you can actually kind of tie the entire the entire conversation we've just had together along the notion of humans embody roles and are humans inside of organizations choose to embody roles and those roles do have a set of rules that you can start to write down, and so there's an extent to which. Uh, the same skills and systems that you would use to adjudicate combat in a fantastical adventure setting, that is small unit tactics, and that is a metaphor for interpersonal behavior within human 
activity and human engagement with the world. Uh, so yeah, I do think it all kind of wraps together and definitely the overlaps between, well, fictional worlds and the documentation formats that would come with their fictional industries, militaries, weapon technologies. It's a very fruitful path to go down. If you, you know, if, if you know that the Lieutenant Space Ranger 4 has a, a pulse rifle, you know that that pulse rifle has a manufacturer, and you know that he went through basic training to learn how to use it, and you know that the manufacturer has suppliers of dangerous pulse rifle resources that you need to make the pulse rifle, and, and you've already built four planets and a bunch of named people and locations, and, and the, the world's halfway there. Hmm. It is interesting, the Infantry Primer, I don't think I've ever owned a UK one. I have a friend who does model rail radio that periodically posts pages of the UK Infantry Primer. I have a US one, I have a Russian one, and I have a German one. And it was the German one where I realised I'm going to stop collecting Infantry Primers. It got a little bit too much. But the Russian one is really thin, and the British one apparently is actually quite large. And the German one seems to be just, well, of a similar length, basically, to the American one. But the subtleties between them, and in particular the lack of ideology in the German one, which I found completely fascinating, because when you think of the Nazi state, you'd think, well, you know, the individual soldiers need to be indoctrinated. No, they're just being trained with basic militarism. They've been given the full indoctrination as part of their social contract, rather than what's in a specific primer. Connor, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Let's try and do these things on a periodic, maybe weekly basis. Maybe occasionally we're going to have to drop weeks. Maybe next weekend. I'm not sure what will happen for either of us. But it's been great fun. And for folks listening in, please do correspond with us through the Facebook group. We have a Twitter account. We also have a sister podcast called This Comes Next, which is now becoming more and more like Attic Aficionado. So if you want to change Connor into a radical, I don't know, elf quest loving from northern california kind of person jay kimona is that person and i think basically inspired by attic aficionados we've turned this comes next into jay kimona's version of attic aficionados connor i think that seems to be what's happened yeah no it certainly does uh, i listened to it uh the the new episode earlier this week and and said oh this is great yes part two of attic aficionados coming in a podcast and the previous ones, we did some political exploration, but I think we both got sick of that. Also, Long Funk, which I'm recording maybe two a weekend currently. And of course, the Stalwart. And funnily enough, a lot of Attic Aficionados listeners also listen to Model Rail Radio. I know you've been a periodic listener to Model Rail Radio yourself, Connor. So. I have. All good podcasts, all produced and created some way by the Barbelay spirit. Connor, a pleasure as always. Look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Yep, absolutely. You too.